Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord from the good news that Mark has for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. When I got married, I had a pretty clear picture in my mind of what our marriage should be like and how my wife should treat me. Anybody relate to that? We all come into our marriages with expectations of what this should be like. And we find out pretty quickly there's this disjunction between our idea of how it should go and the way it really goes. Much of that is due to our own selfishness, of course, but we struggle with that. And so what ends up happening to many of us in our marriages is we get frustrated when we see that disjunction. And so we end up either kind of withdrawing and living two parallel lives or maybe divorcing splitting, giving up on the marriage. But you know, the best thing that can happen is for us to take this picture that we thought our marriage was going to be and have it shattered so that we can get to know and love our spouse for who they really are, not for who we think they should be. You see, I think that's an excellent analogy for our spiritual life our relationship with God. I think the same thing happens for us. We receive Jesus as our Savior and we enter into this new life with Christ and we have an idea of how it should go. 
and how God should treat us, how He should love us, how He should bless us, how He should act in a certain way for our benefit. And when He doesn't do what we expect, we often withdraw into this kind of distant but warm, mildly warm relationship with God and go on our way. Or many just quit Christianity altogether. And what I want us to see very, very clearly is the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with our theology, to use a big word. The problem is with our understanding of God. We just simply don't know Him well enough. And so we need to get to know Him better. Today we're beginning a new study in the book of Mark. And in the next months, more than a year, we'll be going through the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, people are constantly wrong about Jesus. One of the themes that Mark keeps bringing out is Jesus is Jesus. He's God, fully man, fully God, and yet people don't get Him. They think He should be a different. They think He should be a different kind of Messiah. And so they're always met with this disjunction between their view of who they think God should be and who He really is. So one of the great themes of the book of Mark is helping us understand who God really is, to change our view of Him from our expectations of what we think He is to who He really is. I I love our new banner that represents the first half of the book of Mark the different pictures of who Jesus is as we get to know Him and see Him for who He really is, our thinking can be changed. Mark is the most fast-paced of all the Gospels. You may have noticed that if you've read through it. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Mark spends very little time on Jesus' teachings, but he spends a lot of time on Jesus' doings. He writes for Gentiles primarily. Matthew's written more for Jews. Mark is written primarily for Gentiles. That's us, folks. (laughs) He wrote for us to help us grasp who Jesus is. He writes for those who are suffering at the hands of the Emperor Nero to encourage the believers to trust in this Jesus in the midst of suffering, to really see Him for who He is as fully God and fully man. It's interesting, if, if you read Mark, one of the things that strikes you right away is he leaves out the birth narratives. We just went through Advent. It was wonderful. But only Matthew and Luke include the birth narratives. Mark leaves that out. Why does he do that? Well, I think he's so anxious to be, for us to be confronted with this man who is God, Jesus. So our lives will be changed and we'll learn to walk as His disciples. So as we go through this book in the months ahead, I encourage you to keep two questions in mind. Who is this Jesus? Who is He really? Lord, change my thinking. Help me understand and get to know Him for who He really is. And the second question, what does it mean then to be His disciple today in 2015? What does it mean to be a follower of Him, to walk with Him, to really trust Him? 
Do you think you already know Jesus well? Well, let me challenge that and urge you to have Paul's attitude as we tackle this gospel, the attitude he expresses in the book of Philippians. If anyone knew Jesus well, I think Paul did. (laughs) And what does he say in Philippians chapter 3? He says, everything behind me, I, I, I forget that. I'm leaving that behind and I press on that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul says, man, I do not know you well enough, Jesus. And I want to know you better. May we get to know Jesus better in 2015. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for this amazing Gospel that we are entering into this morning. May the expectations we've had of You, of how we think You should treat us and what kind of relationship this should be, may those be shattered, Lord. And may we get to know You for who You really are so that we might truly walk as Your disciples. May the power of the Spirit be at work in our hearts this morning, changing our thinking, changing our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this first section, the first 13 verses, there are three things Mark wants us to know about Jesus right up front. He mentions a number of things, but I just want to highlight three in your outline that I've laid out in your bulletins. First, that Jesus was proclaimed according to the Scriptures. That he just didn't drop out of nowhere, but he was proclaimed according to the Scriptures. He, he was looked forward to this time of his coming to earth was prophesied long before and prepared for and was part of God's plan all along. Let me begin by just saying, who was this Mark who wrote this book? As far as we know, according to tradition, he doesn't use his name to say he wrote it, but we assume it's John Mark. From the scriptures, this is the probable author. John Mark comes to us in the book of Acts first. He was part of the early church. His cousin was Barnabas. And you remember that event where Paul and Barnabas are traveling in their first missionary journey and they head to Cyprus and they take Mark with them. And Mark, for whatever reason, we don't know why, but he abandoned them on Cyprus and went home to Jerusalem. So later when they're traveling on their second missionary journey and Barnabas wants to take Mark with them again, Paul says, no way, we can't trust this guy. And so Barnabas and Paul end up splitting and going separate ways because Barnabas takes Mark with him and goes back to Cyprus where Mark had abandoned them. And I'm thinking that must have been a wonderful time of reconciliation probably. We do find later... In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul has clearly learned to appreciate Mark now because he says, hey, he, bring Mark with you. He's valuable to me in ministry. And then in the book of 1 Peter, we see where Peter has Mark with him. He says in what he calls Babylon, which we are pretty sure is Rome at that point. So Mark is with ministering with Peter. And that's why most people think that The Gospel of Mark is primarily from Peter's memories because John Mark spent time with Peter in Rome. And that's kind of as much as we know about this guy, 
Mark, but as you can see, he experienced failure and he experienced restoration in the gospel in the early church. He begins his gospel this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Is that reminiscent of anything? The beginning. In the beginning. You see, I think it's purposeful. I think Mark says, look, when Jesus showed up on earth, it was as radical as the first creation back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in this new beginning, Jesus shows up. (laughs) This world that has been tainted by the fall and is falling apart because of sin that has damaged everything, there's a new age beginning when Jesus shows up on earth. The recreation of the world is beginning. So that's Mark's perspective here. This new creative movement of God stepping into the world. Jesus has come and he says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, gospel is a word that we're so used to in our Christian culture that we don't understand the import of it. It was a word that in the Greek was not used a lot because it was only reserved for very, very momentous occasions. A huge victory. A war has ended. And so that's good news. That's gospel. (laughs) At the end of World War II, V-Day, Victory Day, that was good news. That was gospel. And so what Mark is saying here is that when Jesus shows up, this is radically good news that's going to change us and change the world. This is gospel. <laughs> it raises the question for me, do I, do I live my life as though this is the most radical good news that's entered the universe since creation? Is this the greatest news in history? Not just for ourselves, but for the whole planet. We had a new granddaughter born this week. On the 30th, Ada Grace, beautiful little girl. You know what? That's gospel. (laughs) That's good news. (laughs) Life-changing good news, right? That's good news. And what is the good news about, he says, this gospel? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has come. The Messiah has come. The Son of God. And... The entire book of Mark is built on revealing who this Son of God really is. So we might understand who this Son of God is, that this one who is Messiah, the Christ, who is fully man and fully God, that we might trust Him and walk with Him. It begins, the book begins with this declaration, He is the Son of God. And the culmination of the entire book is near the end in chapter 15. When Jesus is on the cross and he dies and the centurion, this is Mark 15, verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You see, that's the culmination of the book of Mark because here is a Gentile. Remember, the book is written for Gentiles, for us. Here's a Gentile realizing who Jesus is. 
He's the Son of God. (laughs) May we, as we go through this book, realize in, in a way we've never seen that Jesus truly is the Son of God. So in verse 2 and 3, he quotes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now let me just say, the quotes here are from the book of Malachi and from the book of Isaiah. And some have said, well, Mark doesn't even know the Old Testament because he says it's from the book of Isaiah but part of it's from Malachi. Well, just understand, in the synagogues of those days, they had all the prophets on one scroll. And the first prophet in that scroll was Isaiah, so it was the scroll of Isaiah, and all the prophets were on it. So he's completely accurate here when he says, because both Isaiah and Malachi were on that. The beginning of the scroll was Isaiah, the end was Malachi, and I think it's very interesting to me that he quotes from the first prophet and the last prophet. As if to say, and by the way, everything else in the prophets that talks about Messiah coming is fulfilled in Jesus. It's fulfilled in him. So he says that there'll be one who will come before Jesus comes who will be like a bulldozer. (laughs) He'll make straight the paths. He'll he'll level the playing field. All these hills and all. I, I picture... The Pharisees and all the religious people of the day, they're stuck in all these valleys and hills and no one can really see the Messiah clearly because of all this mess that's been created in the religious world of the day. They can't see Jesus clearly. And so John the Baptist comes to make straight the way of the Lord, to make it clear, to prepare the way for people to see Him for who He really is. And I'm struck by His message What do you think it would take? What kind of message would prepare the way of the Lord for people to see Jesus? Well, verse 4 and 5, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Notice what John the Baptist was preaching. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he was saying, you have sins that have not been taken care of. You are sinners who need to turn from your sin and turn to God. Your lives are a mess. He's highlighting that. He's taking a yellow marker and saying, look, you're sinners, you're a mess. And it says, and doesn't this seem strange? All Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. Now, understand, he doesn't mean, he's a good writer. He doesn't mean every single person. But it's kind of like we would say, man, everybody was at the party. It doesn't mean everybody was there. What it means is there were a whole lot of people there. And he's saying, There were a lot of people coming throughout Judea, the entire country, and from Jerusalem itself, because they wanted to hear this message from John the Baptist. And I don't know about you, but I think about that. Why were people so enamored with this message? To go here, oh, by the way, you're a sinner. You're a mess. You need to repent. 
You need to turn from your sin. Why was there such a huge response? Well, it's a reminder to us of a couple things. One is that when God begins to move in someone's heart, the first thing they understand is they're a sinner. The first thing that they, they are convicted by, remember, the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The first thing you experience when God begins to move in your heart is, wow, I am a sinful mess. That is evidence that God is moving in someone's heart. You see, your need for forgiveness. Now, the people were popularly looking for a Messiah who would come and throw out the, you know, throw out the Romans, be a political Messiah and a religious Messiah, this kind of Messiah that would set everything right. But deep down, they knew that really what they needed was to be right with God. And this world, religious world that they were experiencing in first century Judah uh, in Israel was one with the sacrificial system and what the Pharisees were teaching that the people were not experiencing the forgiveness of God. And they knew deep down that's what they needed more than anything else to have their guilt and their shame taken away. Brothers and sisters, I just think this is so important for us to remember as we deal with this world out there, as we deal with even our own hearts, that the greatest need of those around us is not better self-esteem or being intellectually convinced of the truth of Christianity or to somehow experience social action or whatever. Those... None of those are bad things, but the greatest need of the human heart is forgiveness. And that's what prepares the way for the Messiah when they experience their sense of need and sinfulness. What the greatest need is, is to deal with people's sin that separates them from God. And this is the message that John brought. If you repent, that is you turn from your sin to God then God is sending one after me who will pour out the Holy Spirit on you and you will get new life. You'll be part of this new kingdom. But you first have to face the fact you're a mess and you need forgiveness. And that was his message. It reminds me of the simple message of, of Billy Graham. You know, you, you, you listen to one of his crusades and you go, this is just simple. He's just saying, you're a sinful mess and yet Jesus has died for you on the cross. Trust him. And people responded in droves, same way with John the Baptist. That's the message that people are longing to hear, brothers and sisters. When we are willing to admit that we are sinners, when we are willing to admit that we're a mess, then God steps in with his forgiveness and he's ready to pour out his spirit on us That's what God is looking for, people that are poor in spirit. And incidentally, once you've come to know him, that's still the way we walk with him, right? Day by day as believers. Lord, I'm a mess. I need you to live your life through me because I can't do this. So in verse 7 and 8, it says, He was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit. John says, and if you will admit your sin, there's one coming who will pour out the Spirit on you, give you life. And I, I love John's humility here, you know, where he says elsewhere, I must decrease, but he must increase. It's about him. It's about his life. It's not about us building a kingdom on earth for us. It's about what he is doing in being part of his kingdom. So he wants, Mark wants to make very clear that Jesus was proclaimed. This was planned. This was clearly preparing the way. And once the ground is plowed, the bulldozer comes through, we admit our sin, then we can begin to see Jesus clearly for who he really is. Secondly, what he says, wants us to understand about Jesus is that he was anointed for ministry. Verse 9 through 11, in this baptism, Jesus is baptized. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. Now think about this. Why, was, why, does, why do the Gospels all include this, the baptism of Jesus? Why is Jesus being baptized so significant for us? Well, think about it. Jesus is God himself. He, he's existed forever in heaven. And he chooses to come down. John is teaching a baptism of repentance for sins. Jesus, who has never sinned, comes and says, baptize me too. Remember what John says in the other Gospels? Well, no, you should should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. He says, no, I need to do this. I need to be baptized. Why why is that? Why was it so important? Why did Jesus insist on that? Well, I think it's because he identifies with us in our struggle against sin. Though he did not sin, yet he identified with us. He struggled with the flesh just like we do. And he eventually would take on our sin on the cross. And so he wanted to identify completely with us and say, look, I'm human just like you and I deal with a lot of the same struggles. I am fully human and I will walk your path and eventually take your sin on myself. I think that's why it's so important that Jesus wanted to be baptized for us. And then the heavens split open. And the Spirit descends as a dove, it says, and rests on Jesus. I think this is one of the most significant aspects that happens in the Scripture. Why is that? Well, I think it's because as you you think about the heavens being ripped open, God intervening, that He sends His Spirit down to us, that word ripped open, and that's really the word here, to be torn. It's, it's the Greek word schizo, where we get our schizophrenia, where, where you're ripped into two personalities, where something's ripped apart. The only other place Mark uses that scripture is when Jesus dies on the cross and the veil of the temple is ripped, schizoed, from the top to the bottom. The veil between man and God has been ripped apart. And here that veil is between heaven and earth, we understand that there's heavens all around us, right? It's, it's not just way up there, but it's around us, but we don't see it. But here the veil is ripped open. The Spirit comes through. God shows up in a powerful way. 
It was prophesied in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that this new Messiah would be filled with the Spirit. And so God steps into history and Jesus receives the Spirit. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but wait a minute, Jesus is God, right? He's part of the Trinity. Why did he need to receive the Spirit? Why, why is that? Because, I believe, Jesus chose to live fully as a man on earth. He never completely gave up his identity as God, but he chose to live in the same way that you and I have to live on earth. He chose to receive the Spirit and live and walk in the power of the Spirit, not in his own power. Now, that's kind of mysterious. I I get that. That's kind of... But I think it's very significant because it means that the way that Jesus walked on earth is the same way that we walk. As we study the book of Mark and we see how Jesus responds to life because he's depending on the power of the Spirit, we can say, you know what? I have the same Spirit in me. And I can respond to life in the same way. There's no way we in ourselves can deal with sin to love others well, to live out the Christian life. But if you're a believer, we have received the same Spirit Jesus did. Therefore, you and I have the same resource Jesus did to live a godly life, the very Spirit of God. The Pharisees didn't have that power. They were trying to live the Christian life, well, the Jewish life, on their own. And it's like they're riding a skateboard. You know, they've got to use their own effort to try to keep going. And that kind of works if you're going downhill or on a level, right? But if you get to a little incline, pretty soon you can't go any further. And that's kind of the way the Pharisees were living the religious life and why the first century people were going, this isn't working. But the Holy Spirit's like a diesel engine that God plants inside us and says, if you learn to rely on the Spirit you have power to live life in a way that's way beyond how you could ever live without it. It's a great reminder to us as Christians that the Christian life is not about doing it ourselves, about grinding out, I've got to do the right thing, trying to be good. That's using a skateboard. That's trying to live by the sacrificial system. That does not work. This is a new age, the age of the Spirit. The Christian life is learning to walk in the power of the Spirit. Nothing from me, everything from God. Lord, it's your life in me. Help me depend on you. Lord, love this person through me. Lord, you you help me say no to the sin I struggle with. Help me get the help I need, whatever it means. But Jesus walked that way. He walked in the Spirit. And we have the same Spirit. Do you get how incredible that is (laughs) we have his very life in us jesus several times especially in the book of john it stands out very clearly i i only do what the father's doing through me i only obey the father i rely on the father i rely on him i rely on him i walk in the spirit jesus over and over again makes clear he didn't walk independently of god even though he was god he depended on God, just like we have to. So then there's this voice from heaven, verse 11, and a voice came out of the heavens. 
You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God's voice broke through from heaven and spoke in the Gospels only three times. Here at Jesus' baptism, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember Moses, Elijah, Jesus is there, and Peter, James and John are there, and there Peter says, well, wow, we should, let's try to make this last. Let's build tents for you guys. <laughs> and, and God breaks through from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the third time is just before the cross in John chapter 12 where God's voice breaks through from heaven. Very powerful, significant times in Jesus' ministry. And here he breaks through and he says, this, this son who has done no ministry, who, who has been in seclusion for 30 years, is my beloved son, and I am so pleased with him. Before Jesus did any ministry, before he went to the cross. You see, God's love for Jesus was not based on his actions or his ministry. It was based on his love and their relationship. And brothers and sisters, oh, that we could grasp this for ourselves, that we need to understand that in this gospel, this new creation, this good news that God's love for us is not based on what we do for Him or on how much ministry we do or how hard we try or any of that. It's simply based on being in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, then you become one with Christ and God's love for you is the same as His love for Jesus. Can you grasp that? God's love for you is the same as His love for Jesus once you put your faith in Christ. And that means that these words apply to you and me before we do any ministry. Apart from how much we're struggling in our Christian faith, that God's words to you are these. You are my beloved son or daughter. In you, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. Jen and Jeff Binford in our body have uh, adopted two little ones from China, Jackson and Hope, beautiful little children. And you know what? They chose them. They chose to adopt them into their family, and they love them as they are. Are they going to fail their parents? Sure. Are they going to make a lot of mistakes? Sure. Does that change their love for them? No. They chose them. They love them. So is God's love for you and for me. He chose us. He loves us. And so we minister not to get that love, but we minister out of the fact that we are loved so completely and fully. I think this is important because Jesus right here, see, he ministers from the rest in the rest of the gospel out of this, out of this anointing, out of these two things. I have the power of the Spirit in me and I am absolutely loved no matter what happens. And brothers and sisters, that's how we follow God. That's why we obey. That's how we minister. That's how we serve. That's how we love others. Out of those two things, I have the Spirit of God and I am absolutely loved 
no matter what happens. The Father wants Jesus to never forget that as he walks as a man. The Father wants you and I to never forget that as we walk through life. And then finally, the last thing that Mark wants us to understand about Jesus as he begins his ministry is that he was tested by suffering. Tested by suffering. Sometimes we think that, okay, I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm, I'm walking in the Father's love. He, he loves me dearly and I'm resting in that truth. And so we think, again, this is like getting married and having expectations, right? So we think, well, if that's true, then life will go well. Life will be smooth. I won't have problems. God will smooth everything out. Relationships will work out. We won't struggle with sin in our own lives. We'll cruise through life. We have these expectations of how we think the Christian life should go if God loves us that much. But notice here, verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. (laughs) Jesus is not only walking in the Spirit, he never sinned, never did wrong, and yet the Spirit impels him to go into the wilderness into a place of suffering, of testing, of struggle. You see, God's plan for Jesus as the Son of God was that His would be a life of suffering, of being tested, of struggling with the flesh like you and I do. Being tested both by spiritual attack by Satan and also physical attack from the world in which He created. He's in the wilderness where it's, He's hungry and thirsty and He's surrounded by wild beasts. His own creation is attacking Jesus. What he spoke into existence is attacking him. Now let me say, you know, we can talk about the theology of suffering and pain and all that all day, but we just need to know from this that it's the same for us. We think walking with God should make life easy, that God should block us from spiritual attack, and he should lock up all the wild beasts And make sure there's an oasis every 30 feet in the wilderness. And keep us from heartache and financial difficulty and rejection. And then we find out that life's hard and and we struggle with that, don't we? Because uh, our minds can't handle the fact God loves me and yet life is hard. And that's why we need to know Jesus better. Because the more we know Him, we begin to see how His love is in the midst of the suffering. And Jesus had to walk that path and therefore, though it doesn't make sense to us, that's the path we walk as well. You see, in the mess of life, when you don't understand what God is doing, as you face the unknowns of 2015, whatever might come this year, and you're getting older and all you can see maybe ahead is pain and struggle, remember this. Jesus walked the same path. Jesus understands. Jesus is with you. And you have the exact same resources He did. You have the Spirit of God and you have God's unconditional love poured out 
on you to depend on every moment. So that's the introduction to this wonderful Gospel of Mark. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God, but not as the military and political ruler that the people demanded. Rather, He's the one who came to walk as we walk. He's a servant who rules. And He came to walk as we walk in our world and in our shoes so we could learn to walk in His shoes as we get to know Him better and better through this wonderful book of Mark. Pray with me. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are Son of God and that You did not exempt Yourself from life in this world that we exist in and struggle with. And Lord, as we walk through life this year and as we study this wonderful Gospel of Mark, may may our hearts, our theology, our thinking be changed that we might truly walk as You walked in the power of the Spirit and in the very love of God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.